On this episode of Delivering Marketing Joy, we talk with Jay Akunzo of the great book, Break the Wheel, and he tells us why we should not use best practices. Hey there, and welcome to another edition of Delivering Marketing Joy. I am your host, Kirby Hossman, and joining me today is a rock star. I'm so excited to have Jay Akunzo. He's the author of Break the Wheel. He's also head of Marketing Showrunners, a media company. And Jay, I really appreciate you taking the time, man. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely, absolutely. So um, I wasn't, uh, I actually had the opportunity to read uh, Break the Wheel. I really enjoyed it. And so I wanted to dig in real quick on the idea that, you know, most of us are trying to grow and develop and grow our businesses and get ahead. And so I think, you know, I'm like a lot of people, we lean on what we see other people doing, the best practices. And in the book, Break the Wheel, you kind of blew that up for me. You're like, that's that's not right. Uh, So can you kind of, for those who have not had a chance to read the book yet, can you explain why best practices aren't the best way to go? Yeah, I mean, we'd all get on board with this idea that finding best practices is not actually the goal. And what is is to find the best approach for you, right? right. For, for you as an individual in your career, for your team, for your current situation that you're facing as a team, that's the goal. Um, but we don't really have a system in place. And so today we're facing all these answers and ideas and best practices, conventional thinking, new trends. You know, the, the information age, as they say, has a dark side, which yeah. is advice <laughs> overload. Yeah, um, Right, and so the premium skill I don't think is coming up with ideas or finding them, it's vetting ideas, whether it's your own or somebody else's or the way we've always done things around here. And we don't really have a system for vetting possibilities. So we use a shorthand for that, which is called the best practice. And so that's really all a best practice is. It's a a possibility that's been previously vetted, whether that's vetted by a past version of yourself or your team, uh, or more more commonly today, a, a possibility vetted by an expert uh, guru you admire that says you have to follow their playbook, right? So I don't think that's the most effective. I think it's like a good enough way to make right. decisions. And, and that leads to good enough or average or commodity work. Right. And so we don't want that. And so the book was really this journey to figure out what's that, that difference between average and exceptional, between doing things based on good enough information and decisions and actually customizing those decisions to be specific to your situation, right? Because I think we all operate in these specific situations, these contexts, if you will, Mm -hmm. that have variables present that don't exist elsewhere, certainly not in the expert's mind, right? Mm -hmm. The expert knows what works on average or in general. And so we should probably make decisions based on those variables, not the generality or what works on average, because we don't want to be average. Yeah. It's funny you say that because anytime you give somebody advice and certainly I'm, people come to you for advice, people come to me for advice and you say, well, you know, just do this. And they go, well, my business is different because of this, this, this and this. Right. And those are those variables that you're sort of alluding to. Right. That, you know, not every business is the same. So we shouldn't treat it that way. Yeah, there's a certain, I think, hubris when you're an author and a speaker to get <laughs> off a stage or be on a podcast or a video show and say, well, if you just do that, or if you only follow this rule, or if you if you adopt these simple steps to success, it'll solve everything. And I, that hubris is like, I don't know exactly what goes on in your situation. So, you know, when I appear on these shows, I'm, I'm giving answers that are close enough. And what I hope is people can close the gap between close enough and 
exactly right for them, you know, mm, the best yes. practice for them by using a system of asking great questions about their own environments, because mm. that's the stuff that only they know. Um, and when you really look under the hood, there's only three variables that are present in every decision that we make that are unique to our own decisions, okay. our, our own situations. And those are really the component parts of your context, which I know is kind of a nebulous idea when I say it. So break it apart into three knowable pieces, then ask good questions, investigate those pieces. So number one is you, the person or people doing the work. Mm -hmm. You don't exist in every other scenario. Mm -hmm. Number two is your customer, your audience, whatever stakeholder you're serving. And I don't mean a vague notion of like a persona. I mean the specific people that you're reaching. Mm -hmm. And then number three is your resources. So everybody says, yeah, but my budget or my goals or the timing or the deadlines, et cetera. We all have these uh, and they're specific to our situation. And it turns out if you stop acting like an expert who knows <laughs> absolutes, and you start acting like an investigator who asks really good questions to find evidence, you can just focus your investigation on those three things to start your process. You, your customer or stakeholder, and your resources. Now you know what your context is. You know the key variables. So it's this filter through which you press any idea or advice that you get, and now you can make better decisions faster when you're surrounded by too much information. Hmm. Now I'm curious, this is something I always struggle with. I find that sometimes the best advice I give is the hardest for me to follow. Yeah. I, I always joke that, that the greatest distance in the world is the distance between I know and I do, right? Sure. Like, so I wonder, do you find it tough to not use best practices in your own life or business or have you, have you mastered this? You know what's funny is when you, when you write a book about questioning best practices, <laughs> you, there's two mental gymnast moves I have to live with now. So one is I, I need to, I couldn't have come up with a system that was steps or answers because now I'm giving you a new best practice. So the right. system, the methodology of the book is a list of questions that only you can answer yeah. and, and a methodology to come up with your own questions, right? Yeah. So that's the, that was one mental gymnast move because it's a book about questioning best practices. Right. The other is every day, you know, now I'm building a speaking business, I'm building a writing business, and then most of my time is also dedicated to running, you mentioned at the top, Marketing Showrunners, yeah. which is a media company that covers this this movement of marketers making shows. Yeah. So podcasts and video series, it's, it's exploding in yeah. brands big and small. So, you know, when I'm building that business, there's a lot of stuff that I didn't get into the business to do. You know, when I'm giving a speech or I'm writing a book, I'm like, this is what I chose. I like this craft, this process, it's for me and the audience. And almost every piece I thoroughly enjoy. I find intrinsic motivation doing. Mm. When you're building a business that's bigger than yourself, now there's parts and pieces to it that you maybe didn't get into that business to do, but you just have to swallow. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it could be for somebody, it could be uh, the back end financials, it could be hiring, it could be marketing if you don't like that part. Whatever it is, there's certain things you're like, I don't want to invest all my time. I don't love the intrinsic process of it all. I want to skip to the end. And now that voice starts going, huh, well, I can just copy from someone else or yeah. maybe someone's published a guide or there's a show all about this idea. Now, those impulses aren't wrong, but I would say they just need to be supplemented with, again, that intimate knowledge, call it mm. self and situational awareness uh, of your context, right? And so I'm not discouraging people from following best practices. I am saying for the most important things that you want to be exceptional at that you don't want to be average at, mm. that's where we need to question those best practices, right? And so yeah. I, I deal with that all the time. I get it. Yeah. I'm guilty of it. We all are. I'm not writing this book because I have the answers. I, sure. I wrote it because I wanted to investigate it. And, and lo and behold, I ended up encouraging others to investigate <laughs> everything.
Yeah. No, and, and it, it is a great book. And one of the things I love about it is that you've got some case studies of people and businesses and organizations that have broken the wheel. Um, sure. So I'm cu- just curious, and maybe this isn't a fair question, but are the, was there a, one that was a favorite of yours that was an example that you're like, oh, man, that one was that one's cool. That was super fun. Yeah, you know what's interesting is I, I just sort of I sort of trade in story. Like I wanted to be a sports journalist because okay. of feature pieces on people, not because of like you know games and, and covering the sport necessarily. So right. ever since I was in school, I, I loved human stories, and uh, and I think they're the best way to learn mm-hmm. to get inspiration, etc. So yeah, picking a favorite story from my first book is is a little bit like saying you know I have a favorite child. <laughs> yep, yep um, okay. but I, I do have only one real child, so I do kind of have a favorite. So yeah, that's fair. Screw it, I'll give you my favorite. <laughs> story. So, I I really love the story of Death Wish Coffee. Yeah. Uh, have you encountered Death Wish Coffee? Did you encounter them prior to the book? I have. I have. Okay. And, and, and so well, when you started talking about it, I'm like, ooh, that one's uh, yeah, that yeah. one resonates. Yeah. So Death Wish Coffee, it, they bill themselves as this the world's strongest coffee. That's yeah. their tag. And Mike Brown, the founder, was really scuffling and struggling to run a single location brick and mortar cafe in his hometown in upstate New York. Mm -hmm. And he did what a lot of us would do in that situation. He looked for best practices and talked to experts. Yeah. Now, turns out there was this like one fatal flaw they all pointed to, which was the type of coffee bean that he roasted. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if people know this. I didn't at the time I did this research. The coffee we usually drink. So I just made this espresso right before getting on the horn with you. And it's it's usually called Arabica coffee. It's a type of bean. There's another bean, which is also somewhat popular. It's about 30% compared to the 70% market share of Arabica. It's called Robusta. Mm-hmm. Now, Robusta is famously in instant coffees. It's in uh, espresso, and Italy uses a lot of this because it's transactional. Mm-hmm. It doesn't quite have the flavor profile of Arabica, these longer drinks that we love. You know, I love typing on my computer, sitting around some exposed brick at a, at a modern <laughs> coffee shop. That's me, to yeah. a T. Yeah. So we, especially in the North, North American cultures, drink Arabica. Everybody said Mike needs to roast it. He wasn't. He was using Robusta. Well, it turns out when you roast Robusta coffee, you get more caffeine per cup. So he uses more parts per, I don't know, the measurement unit (laughs) per se, parts per pound, let's say, in his coffee of Robusta beans than Arabica. And the question is why? Like he did the opposite of the best practice. Why did he choose to do that? Well, number one, his own aspiration for him and his team was to create the world's strongest coffee. So rather useful, right? Yeah. Number two, that second part of his context, his customer, in this shop that was failing at one point, he noticed they were all blue-collar workers who really reached for coffee like a transaction, like they would in Italy with an espresso where you stand up and drink it and leave. They didn't like the whole sit-down artisanal type on your Mac idea. (laughs) They were going on a 3,000-mile journey as a truck driver, right? They were Mm -hmm. building a business as an entrepreneur. They were uh, – there's a lot of horse racing tracks in Saratoga Mm -hmm. Springs where Mike operates. So they were they were farmhands, stable hands. So if that's your customer, they don't actually want stronger coffee or artisanal coffee. They want this like ability to work hard. Yeah. Right. So that's what he sells. Death wish coffee. Work yourself to death. You know, you get one <laughs> life. You better pursue what you got with passion. Love um, and then there's his resources, which is the way he approached this was not to reject the best practice wholesale, but to start testing his way forward using like the visceral response of a few people mm-hmm. to know he was on the right path, right. right? So his resources dictated that he couldn't just overhaul his brand. He couldn't stop running the coffee business. So he built this online experiment to supplement his cafe and he called it Death Wish Coffee. And he went from like a few bags a week to now he runs this giant coffee empire. He's no longer running that coffee shop. It's this global brand 
that is competing with these very familiar looking logos and and brands right his stands out it's like dark it's almost like this it's this black circle with a skull and crossbones and red trim why not because he's trying to be a rebel not because he's trying to reject the convention for its own sake it's because he found a better path in his situation compared to what everybody else was advising him do, uh, to do on average. Yeah, that's a that's a wonderful example, um, and I love that one from the book. A um, couple more questions. Uh, so you were recently uh, at an event that I attended called Skew Camp in Pittsburgh, mm-hmm. and you did a great job. I know I told great you before group. we got started, yeah. Um, so I'm curious, as an author, do you enjoy speaking at events like that? And I guess if so, what's what's your favorite part? So, I mean, speaking to me is I'm, I'm fascinated by like stand up comedians and, and musicians, people who talk about the performance craft is really interesting to me because what I love doing is performing educational content, mm. right? Like giving something that's delicious and also nutritious. Yes. And that's what I want to do with my writing. That's what I want to do with my podcast. I want to advise brands do that through marketing showrunners. Everything we're publishing there lives up to that idea that, you know, when, when we're trying to learn the craft of whatever we do for work, we draw such meaning from that work. And yet so often the content that we're de- being delivered or, or consuming doesn't match that meaning. It doesn't match the full, the full emotional plane that we're on during our careers. Yeah. And that sucks. I feel like why not make <laughs> business content as delicious as your favorite entertainment content? Not to be vapid, not a BuzzFeed list article, but you know, my storytelling idol is Anthony Bourdain. I do mention mm-hmm. him several times in the speech. Yeah. He was someone who could pull out a meaningful moment from what seemed like a mundane experience, you know, a home cooked meal, uh, which is what's more average than that, a meal at home. What's more average than yet another coffee, uh, um, uh, espresso bar, yet another uh, food truck. Like these are common things. Not when Bourdain told those stories, not when he talked to those people. He would find that emotion, remind people of what they loved about their work or their location, teach you something, inspire you. So. Speaking to me is like the best way to do that because if I can tell stories, if I can deliver a moment for people in the room, it's visceral, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, I adore that. And I also get to go to different industries and learn what's similar across these industries and and what's different. You know, I think we're we're so tempted to keep our learning close to the chest or close to home rather, which is like you're somebody who sells promotional products like me. You're – I don't know, you're a manufacturer, you're a B2B SaaS company, so I can learn from you because my business is the same. Right. Well, what happens is you get sameness, right? <laughs> right. So, so not only am I experiencing all these industries, I get to see what's similar and therefore pull that into those different industries and also what's different so I can update my thinking. Um, it's, you know, I'm grateful as all hell to do that. It's, it's just a, it's an enjoyable, rare thing and, and I appreciate every moment of it. Yeah, I, it's uh, it's funny you say that. I, I get the opportunity to do a little bit of speaking, um, not like you, but I, I've often said when I'm doing it right, it's theater, and it's it's you know like you said, delicious yep. and nutritious. And if you do it right, um, right. they get the message, but that hopefully they're they're laughing or going along with it too. Sure. So, look, practical practical just means it can apply to the actions you're taking, right? It doesn't mean a list of specific steps or a blueprint you have to follow. So when we talk about keynotes, which are the types of talks I give. It, you know, I think you can dance too close to hollow, to, to just platitudes. And, and so the other version of that is practical. People, oh, I don't like keynotes because they're not practical. No, they should have real impact. They should affect how you take action every day. It's just that sometimes we have to think better or feel the right way. We have to approach the work differently. The, the tactics are, you know, like a map with a red line on it. They're only useful if you're going from A to B. But as soon as the terrain shifts, 
it's more useful to have a compass, right? So you kind of need all of it. Uh, and, and I don't know why practical has started to mean a list of tips and tricks, for example. So, uh, yeah, it's about having impact, but impact, I think, in a deeper way than maybe a, a breakout or a blog post can provide. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Jay, I've really uh, appreciated getting to, to sort of know you a little bit. And certainly the book is Break the Wheel. I recommend it to everybody. It's really good. And and I so enjoyed uh, uh, meeting you and listening to you at uh, that event, SKU Camp. So thank, thank you so much. I appreciate you. Thank you so time. much. I got to go back to enjoying my Arabica because I can't handle Death Wish coffee. It is, <laughs> it is my left eye started twitching when I sampled it during the research. So I please read the book. Please enjoy the story of Death Wish. I caution you when you buy that coffee to, you know, maybe take it one step at a time. It's for real. It's for real. <laughs> well, cool, man. Thanks so much. We'll have to do it again, okay? Cheers. Thank you. All right. Well, that's going to wrap up this edition of Delivering Marketing Joy. We'll see you 